You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 27th, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. <laughs> and Evan Bernstein. What was that? <laughs> hey, Evan. Well, if you like that, if you like that, you're going to love this. You know, it's not actually Halloween day. It's the Halloween week. Mm. All right, let's do the show. Here we go. How much, could, how much of that song should we play before we have to pay royalties? Right about there. <laughs> there. Say about 10 right seconds about ago. There. <laughs> I don't know. He's dead. Ah, but his estate will. He's, he's not coming for his He's making more money now than he soon. ever had. That's true. Guys, honestly, though, when that song came out with the video, how awesome was it? It was incredible. It, it, the, the video was uh, tremendous. I'm no Michael Jackson fan, and I was thoroughly entertained. Come on, zombies dancing. What else do you need? That's right. Thank you, Bob. I agree. And I noticed that Rebecca didn't comment. So no, I, I'm, I'm a big fan. Who doesn't? If like they were it? holding sparklers, it might have been a little more exciting. Oh, but God. It was good. <laughs> you like it, Mr. Sparkler? <laughs> I like the Filipino prison version. <laughs> yeah, the one where they have, have been to dance to or else they get beaten and thrown in a cell. <laughs> I yeah. guess so. That's always a good time. I love watching things like that. Evan, you going to give us anything today or what? Yes, I am. Uh, mine actually has a little bit of an audio to it, so let's get to it. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. Do you recognize the that? Come on, of course come I do. On. And it was October 30th. Apropos, yeah. Very good. War of the Worlds, 1938. The famous Orson Welles reading. People died, didn't they? I didn't. I don't know if anyone died. I thought there were some deaths uh, related to that. Well, Evan, give a quick explanation of what we're talking about. Back, way back, way back in 1938, a fabulous entertainer named Orson Welles uh, did a radio broadcast of the famous H.G. Wells story, The War of the Worlds. And people took it to be a real news broadcast, basically. And the reason they did is because, and I was reading up on this a little bit, is that there was another radio show running at the same time that Orson Welles was reading The War of the Worlds. And it was um, the people who missed the beginning, the introduction, where they explained how this is a story, it's being read by Orson Welles and so forth. It's the people who tuned in like 10 minutes later during the commercials from another program they were listening to called the Chase and Sanborn Hour. They tuned in in the middle of it and they heard the news broadcasts that Orson Welles were, was doing and he was so spot on and he was so realistic in his delivery of these news stories, which are part of the, of, of the script, that uh, it sent basically millions of people into a panic. Uh, you know, people running into the streets. There were thousands of calls to police stations and other places, and there were literally people trying to flee the greater New York area because that's where the attack was supposedly taking place. And it was a uh, it was a big to do in the time. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, for weeks afterwards, there was a huge angry outcry uh, against the way that they did it. A lot of people were very very upset. 
that it was it was portrayed in the fashion that it was and everything because it fooled so many people. But uh, you know, there's no doubt that that was the thing that that uh, made Orson Welles famous. And uh, did you know that there's a monument actually in the town where the uh, the events were supposed to have taken place? Oh, yeah, the initial events. Yeah, they, they built the monument there. New Jersey, yes. Van Ness Park, Grover Mill, New Jersey. But you know what's interesting about this is that uh, the the stories about the level of panic following or you know during this broadcast and the and specific actions taken by people are probably mostly urban legend. Like Bob, I don't know that there's any any evidence that anyone was actually killed in the panic. I doubt that that happened. Maybe not for the 1938 version, but there have been deaths since then. Actually, what you're talking about Willis. <laughs> the uh, well, where the worlds was rebroadcast a few years after uh, its original broadcast. Um, I think it was 1944. A station in Santiago, Chile, played it, and um, a man died of a heart attack while listening to it. Right. Um, that was attributed to the terror, which yes, you can say could be causation, correlation, right, <laughs> could be. You know, not not quite right. But um, however, there's an even better example of people dying. Um, and anybody who listens to Radio Lab, like I do, knows this. That in 1949, it was broadcast in Quito, Ecuador, and the broadcast actually caused a huge panic and a stampede, or a, I should say, a riot that wow. killed six people. Oh my God! Including the girlfriend and nephew of the DJ who played it. Wow! So yeah. Jeez. So wait. So people were in a public place. This guy played the broadcast, and people started freaking out. He broadcasted on Radio Quito. Yeah, and even though they they did set it up, I think as as a fictional broadcast. You know, yeah, they it, it caused a riot. It was one of the most uh, listened sucks. to. Uh, radio stations, I guess, in Quito. Yeah, killed the the guy's girlfriend and nephew, and apparently he ended up needing to move out of the country because it caused so much anger over the incident. Right. Wow. It's, yeah, it's a tremendously famous. It wasn't a hoax so much. I've heard it described as a hoax, but that's that's not no, at all it was, what it was. It, it was intended to be fiction. It was announced as fiction. So some people missed those announcements. Yeah. That's what happens when you tune in late. Right. It's like people who are fast-forwarding to this point of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we don't have that problem with the <laughs> podcast. No, they, they just blow right past this section. Yeah, someone asked me once, like, why don't we do, like, identify yeah. ourselves periodically throughout the podcast? It's like, well, it's not like a radio show where someone's going to come in in the middle of our podcast. If you're listening to it, you know what you're listening to. Pretty. That's right. But this is the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and we're going on to topic number one, or news item number one, I should say, ghosts calling cell phones. Evan, tell us what this is about. I'm surprised that it, it wasn't like iPhones specifically in the headlines of this story. Flash, paranormal expert claims ghosts are using cell phones to contact friends. So what we have is this paranormal, quote, expert in Britain who claims that ghosts are trying to contact the living through mobile phones. Generally, when you read paranormal expert claims, you could stop right there. <laughs> whatever follows oh, no. is, is pretty worthless. Well, yeah, you could stop as far as taking it seriously, yeah. but if you want a good laugh, oh, yeah. keep reading. Oh, yeah. His name is Phil Hayes, and he's a specter investigator. A specter inspector? Specter. <laughs> from, from a group <laughs> called Paranormal Research UK. 
You know him, Rebecca? Have you mm, ever run into Phil Not Hayes? a friend of mine, oddly enough. We must run in different circles. Uh, it's too bad. Well, Phil Hayes claims that a third of all hauntings these days are now now occur through mobile phones. Mm-hmm. One third. Well, that's, yeah, that's that true. Right. Yeah, a third yeah. of zero is zero, and zero of them are caused by <laughs> cell phones. So. He says there's evidence to suggest that ghosts can use phones to communicate. Um, with reports of people receiving phone calls from deceased relatives. I guess Why would they need a phone? Why? <laughs> right. Why can't they just <laughs> do all the other things that people say ghosts do? Why would they have to inter- you know, have to have <laughs> Yeah, can I just <laughs> That's like- I, I I you know, I know this is an anecdote and I know how we treat anecdotes in general, but let me just offer this from my point of view. Um I I've lived here in England for the past year over a year. And just yesterday, my parents managed to figure out how to call me for the first time. Like they couldn't, they couldn't figure out the country code stuff, and then like they weren't on the right zero four four and all. Yeah, that. plus four four. Yeah, and they and then they weren't on the right plan, so like it wasn't going through, and they didn't know why. They just couldn't figure it out. It took them over a year. If my parents, you know, God forbid, should die one day and try to contact me. There is no way in hell they're getting through to my cell phone. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah, they couldn't do it when they were alive. <laughs> oh, my God. No. They'll probably, but, like, they, they might send me a ghost package of brownies. <laughs> right. It all depends on the tech support they got in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably not very good. I'm just going to So what are these phone calls like? The phone rings. It's from a, a completely unknown number, right? It just says well, unknown. So nine nine times Beyond. out of ten, it's an unknown number. I guess the tenth time, it's it is. Have they never heard of Skype? Like, if you've never called via Skype to a cell phone, that's exactly what comes up. Or they have ID unknown blocking. Name, unknown name, unknown. They have caller ID blocking. Yeah. And I get called all the time from people who don't know they're calling me. They're butt calling me. Jay does that all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and so right. what, what do you hear on the other end? You hear background noise and stuff, and there's nobody there, you know. So, I, I, li- I listened for a half hour once. <laughs> that's don't think that sad. you guys don't do it to me, too. It happens to you guys, yeah. too. I mean, I just deleted messages from both you, Steve, and Bob, where it was just basically me hearing you guys walking. <laughs> you know, like, I thought you guys kept your cell phones in your little utility belts. Why? Mm-hmm. How are you butt dialing? No, I, I definitely put mine in my back, back pocket. pocket. Really? Yeah. Yeah. No, my, fanny, I, holster. Mine's in my holster. Uh, yeah, mine's yeah. my holster. I don't, that's why I didn't think that happened to me. I'm not quite secure with my my man my manliness to uh, wear a holster yet. Can't do it. Or a belt. Mm, well, let me, let me just say that uh, you know originally Evan mentioned um, he's surprised that the article didn't say iPhones particularly, and I thought that that was really interesting because um, it does mention something quite specifically it mentions tesco mobile which is a cell phone provider um uh, here in the uk um and it, it comes out of nowhere there's no reason um except for the fact that oh they funded a study the study by tesco mobile revealed paranormal research uk have seen a 70 percent upsurge in paranormal evidence in the last year due to people using their phones it's basically, um, it, it happens so often here in the UK, so much more than I see in the States, where a company wants some some good PR 
um, that they don't have to pay for, but that, you know, bypasses the gatekeepers. And all they do is they fund a study and uh, some BS study. They find, usually they find um, a scientist who wants a quick paycheck and is willing to come up with, like, the scientific formula to find the world's happiest day or the world's saddest day sponsored huh. by Kleenex, you know, or something like that. But in this case, they haven't even bothered to find an actual scientist. They just found some jackass with his own paranormal <laughs> group. Um, and uh, so they, they, they got this guy on board to say, oh, yeah, 70% upsurge in paranormal evidence. Blah, blah, blah. It doesn't have evidence. It's <laughs> right. just, it's not what a, a bunch study. Of crap. It's just it's people reporting that they get strange phone calls. Yeah. Well, look then, at an anomaly. You know, it's got to be a ghost. And 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 this guy, or an alien. who's even to say that they even asked anyone? Like, yeah. statistics show two thirds of all paranormal phenomena feature sounds. What? Yeah. What, is, <laughs> what is that? Statistics what kind show. Of, what statistic is that? Paranormal Research UK. Show me. Show me your bullshit surveys. Did your paranormal experience involve a sound? Well, did it involve a smell? You know what? Now that you mentioned it, there was a fart-like smell. You know, 15%. That's what this article says. 15% of all paranormal phenomena feature smell. Who cares? You know who cares? Tesco Mobile. Because they got the name of their company in an article that's being passed around and talked about. Screw you, Tesco Mobile. Screw you and your BS pseudoscience article. Thank you. That is all. Wow. So it's, I, I think, I, it's true. So much of what we encounter now is is stealth marketing, you know? Yep. Just yeah. adding to the noise. You know, just adding to the noise out there. Bye. Bye, sheeple. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go on to some real science news, Bob. You're going to tell us about oh boy. hawking radiation in the lab. <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, if scientists have recently confirmed the existence of Hawking radiation using a black hole analog. You guys ever hear of a black hole analog? I like, I like digital ones better. <laughs> Daniele Faccio and colleagues at the University of Insubria will soon publish a paper in the journal Physical Review Letters describing their use of this pseudo-black hole of sorts to create radiation that's long been theorized, but we could... Uh, Otherwise, probably never see for real. I don't think it's ever going to be really de- uh, directly detected. So this is very. This could be important. Um, Hawking radiation, pretty cool stuff. In, in 1974, Stephen Hawking, who we all know and love, uh, made the bold declaration that black holes are not totally black. And black holes have always been kind of seen as, uh, you know, just always w- one way. They suck in anything that gets close. Uh, even light can't escape, right? So the the idea that they were that they could actually behave like black bodies and emitting radiation is, was pretty pretty dramatic. So he theorized, Stephen Hawking theorized that the black holes must emit a stream of particles because of the famous uncertainty principle we, we've so often talked about, described by quantum mechanics. Now, I believe, didn't I talk about virtual partic- particles uh, and TAM this past July? Um, if, you want to get, if you want to get a little more detail, maybe go back to that one. But these virtual particles are, are related to this. These, uh, these are the particles that are constantly appearing everywhere, even, even in the vacuum uh, out of seemingly nothing. They're just these particle-antiparticle pairs that quickly annihilate each other before they can ever be directly detected, even, even in principle. Um, so Hawking thought that, that when these two particles appear near a black hole's event horizon, which is the, the area around a black hole where, even, where light, even light cannot escape, You've got these particles appearing right by this event horizon. One of the particles will, will get trapped by the black hole, and the other one would escape out into space, becoming what we would call Hawking radiation, which could be something like the, 
we could see them as photons or, neutrin- or neutrinos. Um, and there's other ways to look at this phenomenon. The virtual particles can actually appear within the black hole, and one particle can quantum tunnel out of the black hole, which is, uh, which is also allowed by quantum mechanics. So the end result, though, is pretty interesting. Black hole evaporation. Black holes can, over time, actually get less and less massive. Um, it takes a little while, though. If you've got a star that's, I'm sorry, if you've got a black hole that's about 30 solar masses, it could take, one uh, website said, 10 to the 61 times the age of the universe before it would disappear. Jeez. So, yeah, that, you, you'll be waiting for quite a while. But as the, as the black hole gets smaller, the emissions increase until it explodes, and the black hole is pretty much essentially gone. That This radiation will likely never be directly observed, as I said before, because it's so faint and so tiny that the background radiation of the universe just pretty much just overwhelms it. So the chances of us actually detecting this directly are, are pretty much nil. Um, so to get around that, the scientists devised a way to make it artificially using a black hole analog. Now, of course, they don't duplicate a black hole's gravity in a lab. That's kind of silly. They do duplicate uh, the key aspect, though, of the black hole that allows the particles to escape, and that's the event horizon itself. Now, they, they do this with, uh, with one of the coolest tools ever invented, the laser. In this specific application, a laser is used to change the refractive index of a material. I'm sure you guys have heard of refractive index. That, that's basically, uh, the, this index determines how fast light moves in any particular medium. So water, for example, the, uh, the refractive index is 1.33. And all that means is that that light in a vacuum travels 1.33 times faster than it does in water. So the laser then creates this event horizon peak of sorts in the glass, because when you shine a bright light at certain materials, it can ch- actually change the refractive index. So I guess a laser would be very efficient at doing that. So you've got this peak, this peak in the glass. Now in front of this refractive index peak, the light travels just normally. It travels right through the glass normally. But if but if light is behind this this change in refractive index, then the light is essentially trapped like it is in a, a real black hole's event horizon. The kicker then is that photons have been detected that normally couldn't have been produced in this glass. So it actually looks like, at least now, it looks like virtual particles are appearing kind of within this pseudo-event horizon, and one of them is trapped, and the other virtual particle is just speeds away to the various detectors that, I had, that, that they have arrayed around this thing. So it looks like they may have, they may have proved that the Hawking radiation actually exists. They, they need to do a little bit more studies on this because... Um, you know, it's not definite. I mean, they have, there's no real smoking gun. One real smoking gun would be if they prove that these particles are, are entangled because virtual particles are entangled. They are, they are intimately connected quantum mechanically such that they're, they're really one entity in, in a sense, even though they might be separated by even light years. So if they can prove that these virtual particles are entangled, then that would be pretty much a smoking gun that this, this really is Hawking radiation and it really does exist. One interesting aspect of this is that Hawking may actually win a Nobel Prize. People are talking about it, that he could potentially win a Nobel Prize in physics for this, which would be, be kind of nice. But, uh, and I, th- I think this is actually fairly likely because um, there's, there's so many other different studies that are actually being done that actually can show that, that Hawking radiation actually exists without actually you know, detecting it from a black hole itself. So I think it'd be pretty cool if he won it. So is there like a real kerfuffle over whether or not this should be allowed? What do you mean? Well, yeah, whether or not that counts as, as proof of Hawking radiation. Like, are there, is there a, an sure, organized I think so. movement against it? I, th- I, think, I think, sure. I mean, if you have enough evidence supporting your theory in the lab that really seriously points to uh, 
to the fact that uh, what you're theorizing has some validity, then sure, why not? I mean, um, if they find that these virtual particles are entangled, that would pretty, you know, I think most scientists or most physicists would agree that, yeah, this looks pretty damn good for, for um, Hawking radiation. So, yeah, I don't think they need to actually find Hawking radiation coming from a black hole in, or, in order to warrant him, you know, being awarded that prize. I mean, they could be confident enough. Part of that also is the fact that, you know, you can't get the Nobel Prize post posthumously, so he's got to win it before he passes away. And we're not likely yeah. to observe Hawking radiation directly anytime soon. So if he right. ever is going to get the Nobel Prize for, you know, thinking of Hawking radiation, then uh, this, he's, it's got to be a laboratory confirmation. It's never going to be direct yeah. astrophysical confirmation. Yeah, just way too faint, unless we had a black hole in our backyard, I guess, which isn't <laughs> going to happen anytime soon. Let's do a quick follow-up on a new story we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, we talked about the fact that scientists observed variations, fluctuations in the rate of radioactive decay. Now, radioactive decay is supposed to be steady, constant. Yeah, constant, steady like a metronome, uh, you know, averaging it over time. It's the spontaneous right. you know, giving up of particles as you know, heavy elements change into isotopes that are slightly more stable. Uh, that you know sends out different kinds of particles, you know, different kinds of radiation, depending on the type of radioactive decay, and you know you can measure those particles, and over time, the um, decay rates should be completely should be a constant, as Bob said. However, researchers did did observe um, researchers at Purdue University a small, a fraction of a percent, and also very transitory deviation in the radioactive decay, and they think that it was timed with a solar flare. So they hypothesize that something from the sun, maybe like neutrinos from the sun, may be altering radioactive decay rates. Well, uh, uh, researchers from NIST have tested at least that hypothesis. They didn't really replicate or, or contradict the ob observation itself, just the notion that neutrinos may be altering decay rates of, in this case, gold-198. What they did was so they placed gold 198 either in 198 either into a spherical shape or a foil shape and they reasoned that in the spherical shape more neutrinos would pass through the rest of the material as it decayed therefore there'd be basically more neutrino interactions going on in the spherical shape than in the flatter shape and that if neutrinos were affecting decay rates that they would be different and they measured the decay rates very carefully over weeks, and they found no difference at all. So this is one way to test one aspect of you know the, this notion that that uh, decay rates can fluctuate based upon some kind of environmental factor, and and it has come up negative. The researchers, I think, are not very fond of the the whole notion of variations in decay rates. They they brought yeah. up a very good point. They said that. You have to consider environmental effects on the measuring instruments, right? So there may be environmental fluctuations in the measured decay rates, but that could just as easily be effects on the measuring instruments as opposed to the actual decay rates. As a point of interest, Steve, they, uh, they, they've tested this with uh, changes in pressure in temperature using a magnetic field, acceleration, and radiation in the environment. Yeah. With, I mean, yeah, the, ever uh, since radiation was dis radioactive decay was discovered, I mean, it was been tested to every no one could find any environmental factor that would alter the decay rates. That's why this would be so unusual. So they have to just try to replicate it by uh, maybe they actually have to try to affect the instruments again and see if that they could duplicate that and if it matches. 
Yeah, I think that they really need to, to replicate the, just the raw observation that the de- decay rates are actually fluctuating and confirm that uh, with more data before I think the scientific community in general is going to get too excited about this. And therefore, God created the universe. But uh, otherwise, you know, so the, when you have an anomaly, your first order of business, business is always to determine if the anomaly is really there or if it's an artifact of your experimental or observational design. If it's really there, then you, you, know, you come up with hypotheses to explain it. And to be fair, though, Steve, they, I mean, from what I read about this, they really have tried to account for all the environmental effects and instrument effects. I still think there, it, it is instrumental or environmental because yeah. it's just so much more likely than av- having these, some of these constants be different. But they, they have made quite an effort, and uh, I think they just need to do more to really nail this. But, yeah, I'm right. sure it's got to be something to do with the environment or the instruments but not – these constants of nature right. change. Unlike ghost hunters who do not make a concerted effort to rule out artifacts right. in their measurements. Exa- right. Exactly. They change nothing. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. They change nothing. And the Shroud of Turin, yeah. therefore, is real. The real Steve, burial are you saying that, that ghost hunters are not totally obsessed with precision and with accuracy and what they're reporting and what they're observing? No, I'm saying that they're children who are pretending to do science, but they don't have the first clue what it is. Ouch. That's what I'm oh, okay, good. I needed that clarification. Okay, just to clarify. We got a lot of email about this next item. There was an article in The Atlantic talking about the research, uh, research of John Ioannidis, 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 I don't know how to say his last name, which I've actually written about before and talked about before. Essentially, he has done research looking at the nature of the patterns in the medical literature itself. And one of his most often cited papers, which I actually have, you know, I have a slide on it in all, almost all of my lectures now on, on science and medicine, is that he showed that most published uh, medical studies, in fact, come to the wrong conclusion, that in retrospect, they're wrong. And this makes sense if you look at it statistically. If you set the, the, the p-value at you know, 0.05, then you look at the number of new – we take a reasonable estimate of you know, how many new ideas that people come up with are going to be correct. You, you should be turning out a, a steady stream of false positive studies. Then you take into account the experimenter bias and publication bias – and then you come up with the notion that 50 or 60% of the literature you know, could be essentially false positive studies or, or come to the wrong conclusion, whether positive or negative. Um, and he showed this directly by taking questions, medical questions, that have been pretty uh, definitively answered by multiple large you know, consensus trials. And then going back over the last 20 years and just counting up all of the papers that basically asked the same question, and he found, found out that most of them were wrong. So that much, I think, is, is pretty well established and is actually not that surprising. You know? So the Atlantic article, however, tries to make this all seem strangely scandalous in some way. And, of course, the you know, uh, the alternative medicine cranks have, have jumped all over this and it basically becomes a hand-waving say. Say, see, you know, there really isn't any good science in medicine. It's all made up BS anyway. So what, what this amounts to is partly it's the nirvana fallacy or the fallacy of the, the perfect solution. Uh, and that fallacy is to point out some deficiencies in something, some system or some solution. And, and, then conclude, therefore, it's worthless. 
uh, where there's no value to it or that it, you know, it doesn't work, it's broken. You could do this for anything. You could point out all the deficiencies of democracy and say that you know, therefore it's a horrible broken system that doesn't work. Or you could say, yeah, you know, there is no perfect system. You know, people are imperfect and there's lots of deficiencies, but there's also lots of positive things to it as well. And if you try to compensate for the bad things and, and take advantage of the strengths, it basically works and it's at least better than anything else. And, you know, both of those uh, analyses can apply to either, you know, democracy, for example, or to science. Yeah, there's lots of – science is messy. You know, what's interesting is that I spend a lot of time writing about this. The other authors at Science-Based Medicine spend a lot of time writing about the messiness of science in general and medical science in particular and all the ways in which you have to uh, avoid pitfalls and use evidence in the right way. So it's always interesting to read other people essentially make the same points as if they're pointing them out to us right, to the proponents of science-based medicine, as if we're like pretending all of these flaws and weaknesses are not there. And then they come to the conclusion, often again, based upon this, basically the nirvana fallacy, that therefore, you know, science-based medicine is broken, or it's this big scandalous secret that no one's talking about. But it's all BS. This is, this is just, this is what science is. It's complicated and messy. And we make lots of mistakes along the way. But in the end, I always have to point out the only way that Ioannidis could do his analysis is if in in the end the science worked itself out and we came to a definitive conclusion, right? Otherwise, it, it makes no sense. The, the literature is only wrong when you compare it to itself. But in each one of those questions, we did eventually sort out what the right answer was. Yeah, so to summarize what you're saying, uh, during the self-corrective process that science endeavors to do, mm -hmm. right? Like, so, for example, if you take a drug and they go through trials with the, the medication, there's all different levels of testing that they do to the point where they actually test it on people and then it even it, you know, gets turned out to the public, hopefully, if the, if the drug is successful and proven to be safe enough and everything. And even then, even when it's turned out to the public and, and you know, now you go from hundreds of people testing it to millions of people using it and, and testing it, they'll still make modifications to it and, and you know, make improvements on it or even recall the drug if they find that there's something that they missed about it. Like that, that's one example of, of the corrective process, correct? Yeah, that, that's not even really what I was talking about, but that certainly is one limitation. You can only extrapolate so much from a limited pool of test subjects, right? And then you have to apply, as you say, data from 100 or 1,000 patients to a million. The other problem is that every type of evidence has its limitations, Observational data has as a strength the fact that we're observing what's happening in the real world, but it has as a weakness the fact that you're not controlling for variables, so it's really hard to infer cause and effect. Experimental data, its strength is that you're controlling for variables if you're doing it right. And so you can you can make cause and effect efficacy claims, but the problem is that you control variables so much it becomes a bit of an artificial situation and it it, it, then you start to lose the ability to necessarily extrapolate or apply it to real world practice. So we like to see a combination of evidence, you know, where we see that when you control all the variables, a treatment actually has efficacy. And then when you apply it in the real world, people actually do better. 
Um, and we like to see it backed by good basic science as well, that we like to see all the pieces fall together. The problems ensue when people look at one observational study and try to come to some conclusion based upon that uh, without even recognizing that you know observational studies are, don't control for variables. So you can't infer cause and effect easily, right? Or they look at a bad experimental study that did a really poor job of controlling for variables or it was just too small to do meaningful statistics. And they try to draw a conclusion from that. What's interesting is that while we're constantly trying to sort of essentially raise the bar for uh, the scientific approach to medicine, the alternative medicine proponents will criticize the alleged deficiencies of that process as if it's news to us. And uh, But then they promote using absolutely horrific science in its stead. That's where the – again, that's where – the, the uh, another fallacy comes into play where you and the creationists do this as well it's the same process where they you know it's the the uh you know like a false choice where they're saying oh yeah there's problems with evolution therefore creationism is right forget about all the problems with creationism that are yeah. orders of magnitude worse than false, any false dichotomy yeah yeah any of the um the, the typical messiness of even even an established science. Well, Steve, in your in your most recent uh, science based medicine post, I believe, right, or was it mm-hmm. Neurologica? Well, were, I cross posted, yeah. But you were writing about how you just want everything, all medical treatment, to be on or held up to the same standard, right? Yeah. So, so I, I, it, in that blog post, I was actually responding to someone else, not the Atlantic article, because actually David Gorsky wrote a very good response to that. But there was a, a, another blogger who was essentially making the same kind of points, like, you know, presuming, and she actually called me out by name, so of course I had to write in response, but like presuming to lecture me about the nature of uh, evidence in medicine. Like, well, you could have you bothered said, oh, to read. Yeah. Well, you know, she's, she's tried, she is character, was characterizing the stance of science-based medicine, but she, it was really just a pathetic straw man. And I pointed out that, you know, I, I, I said, I don't expect you to read the thousand blog entries we have on science-based medicine, but you could have read a few of them, you know? You could have done just the tiniest bit of scholarly due diligence. You could have, for example, read my series of posts on evidence in medicine that was, like, right in the sweet spot of what you're talking about. Yeah, but you don't, you don't have a search engine in your blog site. <laughs> how, how would you find that? <laughs> well, but the point is she just was attacking a caricature straw man of what she thinks science-based medicine is. And just essentially as an excuse, and, and her, a lot of her commenters piled on, just to say that we're arrogant, paternalistic bullies, right? That's the mantra when you start defending standards in science. Oh, we're paternalistic, we're bullies. It's nonsense. And, but she, she mischaracterized every aspect of what we're actually saying. It's like, you know, our point is that the science is messy and that you can't rely on one type of data. It all has to sort of fit together, both experimental, observational, and basic science. So, it, I, you know, it's, it is frustrating. And this comes up within science and skepticism all the time. It comes up with climate gate, for example, where, you know, again, it's the same process of learning that science is messy, the process is messy, and it involves people with egos who make mistakes and say stupid things. But at the end of the day, it doesn't mean that we don't know anything or that the whole process is broken. It just means that you have to proceed very carefully and you have to understand the pitfalls. But you can get to a very a very confident conclusion when evidence all starts piling up in one direction and you know, no matter how you, you look at it, it sort of all fits together with, with one coherent story, 
then you th- you know, but it's always tentative, as we said with Stephen Jay Gould last week. It's not absolute truth with the capital T metaphysical certitude, but it's it could be confirmed to such a degree that it would be absurd to say this is probably true, you know, barring further evidence or other ideas to the contrary. Now, the scientific process actually has built into it the fact that humans are conducting the experiments mm-hmm. and we're faulty. Yeah, you know, we're not machines with a, without a bias and without a perspective yeah. here. It, it is, but but even still, the bias comes through, and we need to recognize that. I mean, especially in medical science. I mean, first of all, everyone wants to be right, you know. So it, there's an inherent bias towards you want your ideas to be confirmed. You're, and you're right, Jay. We accept that, and and you know, we try to design experiments so that the possibility of bias is minimized. Uh, you also that's why you like to see replication. So hopefully, biases are sort of canceling each other out. Does the scientific process actually get better? As time goes by, do we find ways to make it more accurate? But do you mean science, the scientific method as a tool of investigating nature and asking yeah. questions? I think that yeah. – yeah, I think it's, it's like any technology. It gets better as we get more experience with it and, and you know, figure out better ways to do it, identify new sources of bias that we could then control for in the future. Pitfalls, yeah. So, yeah, it evolves. I think it slowly evolves, yeah. Uh, we're going to end the news sec- the section with just a couple of announcements. Uh, I wanted to put these in the middle of the show because uh, they're important. Uh, the first is that we have an official date for the Nexus Convention for 2011. We are expanding the program. Uh, the, the main program is now going to be over two days, Saturday and Sunday, April 9th and 10th. We may, in addition, have uh, other events on the Friday night before the official start of the conference. Uh, but at the very least, we're going to have uh, two days of panels and lectures. Uh, we're still we're actively involved in lining up the speakers, and we, once we have uh, more information, we'll start doling it out as they come in. Basically, as we get confirmations on speakers, as we you know set up the the registration page, all those things, we'll let you know. But just we wanted to get the date out there as soon as possible because we know that people have to plan way ahead for this. Um, and again, this is the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. It's a joint project of the New York City Skeptics and the New England Skeptical Society. Uh, it will feature a live SGU recording. Usually we do like a two hours right in the middle of the conference recording a live show with the entire cast, assuming that there aren't any volcanic eruptions. Keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> in the uh, in the days prior to the conference, so check it out. You can go to the NexusCon website. Uh, we'll have a link to it from our homepage, and uh, check it out for updated information. We've sold out two years in a row. Get your ticket early because it's going to sell out. So far, we've sold out pretty much every event where I've said that. So we're sold out at Tam Oz. We've actually we're we're pretty much sold out for the dinner right now as well. I, you know, we have a couple of tickets held aside in terms, uh, depending on how much space we're going to have. If you go to meetup.com/tamaustralia, you can also see a bunch of other fringe events that you can get involved with. So, if you can't come to Tam Australia or to our dinner, you can, for instance, go on a bridge climb, things like that. So, right, check that out. And we have another announcement. This is actually good news. I sent this link to you guys, right? Physics.org. 
put out their nominations oh, yeah. for uh, the 2010 yeah. awards. They have blog awards. Uh, uh, and, in fact, Bad Astronomy is up for the blog award. And they also have cool. a podcast award. And uh, we are one of the five yeah. finalists. Wow. Which is very nice. That's, now, awesome. That's very nice. Apparently, very cool. they are going to have, in each category, there's going to be a judge's choice and a people's choice. Uh, so you can vote. You can actually vote for the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe for um, Best Podcast, if you are so inclined. Yep, people's choice, yep. Where uh, can they go to do that, Steve? The, that's, if you go to physics.org, from the homepage, you'll see where to go. They'll have, they have all their awards up there. And we'll have the link in the sh- the direct link to the podcast awards uh, in the show notes. I believe they, people might have to register to actually vote. Yeah, you've got to register on the site to vote. Yeah, yeah, you have to sign up, yeah. Takes a second. Don't Actually, all five you. podcasts are good, I'll say. There's Science Weekly. Little Adams is there. Yeah. Uh, the Naked Scientist podcast. There's us and there's Science Talk. All fine podcasts. But, you know, if you're going to vote for one that's not us, make it Little Adams. Right. Just vote for us. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> not, right. I'm not biased or anything. <laughs> well, let's go on to uh, Who's That you- Noisy? Evan, can you play the Who's That Noisy from last week? Absolutely, I can. Here we go. Yeah, what cool is stuff, that? huh? That is a uh, space shuttle taking off, launching of the space shuttle, the solid rocket booster separation specifically. Cool. And uh, this was uh, this is a very very cool segment uh, sent in by a listener, uh, Alex from South Melbourne, Australia, brought this to my attention. Thank you, Alex. Uh, did anyone get it exactly right? And I saw a lot of rocket booster answers, but did anyone get it exactly right? Yes, absolutely. Someone did. Oh, and it was, specifically, it was STS one twenty four for those of you keeping track of such things at home. And yes, the person who got it right first was. Uh, Elert, E-L-E-R-T, from the message boards. Only his third awesome. post. All right. Is everyone on this show ready for this week's yes. Who's That Noisy? Here it is. That's a keyboard. That's a, that's a very large person sitting on a keyboard or an accordion, right? No. And it's not a sound effect from a Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, it was definitely reminiscent of that. I think I heard a trombone in there. <laughs> Thanks, Ev. Well, let's go on to a couple of your questions. The first one comes from Todd Bernard from Denver, Colorado. Todd writes, cell phone in Charlie Chaplin flick? Just saw this on my feed reader. Any ideas? Love the show. Gives a link to a YouTube video. Have you guys seen this? Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> it's a time traveler. There's it's really a- there's no other explanation except for someone defied the laws of physics and traveled back through time to appear in a Charlie, not even a Charlie Chaplin film, to appear in the extra on a DVD <laughs> for an advertisement 
for a Charlie Chaplin film. Now, I didn't know there was an iPhone app for that. Now, that's fantastic. Is there anything Apple can't do? Nothing. Not a goddamn thing. Where in the video is it? Like, the film is called The Circus. It was made in 1928. And I guess the DVD just came out or something. And in the extras, they have this film of the... It's like... I think it's a film of the premiere or something. It's got this horse painted as a zebra out front and people milling around and walking past. And a man walks past in the background and just behind him comes this, apparently a woman. She's kind of dumpy looking. She's not the swarthy time traveler that we're all accustomed to. Mm -hmm. The, say, George Carlin or the David Tennant that we're that we're used to no she's like this fat fedorid like hunched over old woman like sylvia brown yeah without the nails yeah right 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 they didn't have those back in 1928 even for time travelers apparently so yeah and she's got her left hand up to her face that's the hand facing the screen and she is talking. And so obviously this is a cell phone. There's really no no other well There's actually there are several there are actually several other explanations. Um one of which but is the that person in the U- but the person in the YouTube video said, How can you possibly explain this? I have no explanation for what I'm seeing. Right. right. There's no possible explanation except for like every other explanation. <laughs> One explanation, she's insane and she's, you know, adjusting her hat or something and talking to herself. Another, that she's talking to the man that sped up right in front of her, um, telling him to wait up. Maybe she is using a uh, ear trumpet, you know, an old type of hearing aid called an ear trumpet where you, it's just like a big bell shaped Horn. Horn-looking thing, thing yeah. kind it's of a horn, thing. Yeah. yeah, you jam it in your ear, and Ew. it kind of, kind of, sort of looks like that. Someone on Gawker suggested that it might be a transistor radio, because AM has been broadcasting for several years by then. Um, we we were discussing it amongst the skeptics, and I, I just want to mention that. Oh, Maria w- mentioned that she was watching the uh, the filmmaker's video. The guy who did the original video pointed it out. And that he uh, he says, it's not an AM FM radio because obviously it's 1928. And she, she points out, well, obviously it couldn't be an AM FM radio because it's 1928. So it must be a cell phone. Like, right. <laughs> like, you know, if you're going to travel through time, you're only going to choose one. Right, you know, yeah, the logic there is rather dubious. Yeah, and and who who was she talking to? Yeah, that's the thing. Like, and where are the cell towers? I should mention that there's another good point that Maria brought up. She said, <laughs> "I'm sitting at my desk at work right now, and I have no signal." She got a signal in 1928. <laughs> How did this happen? Well, she so, could be using technology that's 50 years in the future. That's time traveling signals. She set up, yeah, she set up a, a sophisticated, futuristic, little can't portable can't device. What do you mean, can't be? No one is going to be frumpy in 50 years. Bob, it's a disguise, but that's a disguise Bob. Bob. Yeah, it's a disguise, Bob. Yeah, to fit in. to blend in. Yeah, the Prime Directive. Uh, you ever heard of that? 
It's all coming Because in 50 now. years, they'll think that everyone in the past was fat, so she got into her fat costume to blend in. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it is, um, when you look at the video, it definitely looks like she's talking on a cell phone. It's ex- the exact way that we do it today. And yeah. It yeah. is kind of weird. You know, it definitely stands out. It, it's, yeah, it's funny. If, if the guy who made the video just said, isn't this funny? To the to modernize, it looked like it looks like she's talking on a cell phone. I wonder what she's actually doing. But he went on and on about this is unexplainable. He used that term multiple <laughs> times. This can't be anything else, you know. He, so he basically saw something anomalous, leapt to the most ridiculous conclusion that you could think of, and then tried to backfill why that had to be the case or why at least any other plausible explanation was ruled out when in fact. In the comments to the video, many people pointed out that there are, you know, hearing aid models that look exactly like what this woman's holding up to her ear, and that certainly is a plausible explanation for that. How likely is that? It does seem to be happening more and more. Recently, um, I think just earlier this year, there was a big to do over a time traveler in a 1940s photo um, just because he happened to be wearing some funky sunglasses and a cardigan and what looked to be like a t-shirt but because this is the difference i think between the the skeptical approach and the fantasy mongering approach if you will You, you see this woman holding something to her ear that looks interestingly like a cell phone I'd want to know what that actually is. What's going on there? Is if, if we could figure it out rather than just saying, ooh, isn't that mysterious? It must be something really you know, bizarre like time travel going on. Did you look at the link I sent you guys on the Sonotone? It, it's the, the size of a cell phone in the palm of the hand. It's a perfect picture of it. Or you know what? It could also be something that nobody's thought of. Something Like a time travel. Bizarre. Wait. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or, or a, a sexual bizarre, play. yet but yeah, even even something unique and bizarre is more likely than a time yes. traveler. That's the thing that people forget. Steve, yeah, she could have been speculating about future phone technology, and she made this prop and was <laughs> yeah. pretending to use it. That's more likely. <laughs> That's more likely than time travel, <laughs> right? Well, let's go on with our interview. We are being joined now by some friends of ours from the SGU forums, Doug. Hello. Karen. Hello. Amanda. Hello. And Stephen. Hey. Welcome, guys, to the Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So you guys have been moderating our boards for quite some time now, the, uh, the SGU forums, and we, of course, greatly appreciate the work that you're doing. You're doing a fine job. So, Doug, why don't you start by giving us a little bit of background on the SGU forums? Okay. Well, I started doing this about two years ago. Uh, there was a need for it, and I talked to Rebecca somewhat about it. I had been uh, moderating and administrating, well, mostly moderating, the uh, Skeptic Forum when that was up. And so she and I go way back, way back to you know the JREF times. There was a need, and I had some time, so I decided to volunteer for it, and here I am. So tell, give us, what do you guys actually do as the moderators? I mean, you talk about disciplining, but that not, not a lot of that actually happens. I mean, it's pretty much a free-for-all inside the forums with just a little bit of nudge here and there, right? Right. Well, most of the guidelines, like my moderating philosophy, comes from one simple phrase, which is 
setting up an, an intellectually challenging environment for rational, polite discussion. That was from one of the original posts, like I think the fourth post ever on the board called The Rules. And that's that's been pretty much my mission statement. Watching for that, making sure that, you know, posts and threads are stay as intellectually challenging as the internet will allow and make and just making sure people treat each other nicely and like grown-ups treat each other and how have you found that task i mean so uh without getting into details i mean people often don't like being told what they can and cannot do especially you know people have uh characterized the skeptical community as uh, you know, we're trying to control it in any way as equivalent to herding cats. You know, we basically have a group of people <laughs> who cherish their individualism and like being snarky. Um, do you find it challenging to know where those limits are? It is a lot like herding cats. And one of the things I've realized as I've done this is that the more maturely you treat people, the more they will rise to that occasion. And if you if you treat them like babies, they'll act like babies. But if you treat them like, you know, responsible, rational, mature adults, they usually respond in kind. And, you know, every once in a while when flames start getting a little too hot on the boards, I just stick my head in and go, you know, let's let's calm this down. Let's go back and being back to being rational and polite, remember. And most of the people go, Oh yeah, you're right. I was a little bit out of line. You know, there's a few people, of course, that say, oh, shut up and and just don't take little nudges like that at all well. So it, it gets ratcheted up for them. But far and away, most people you know, just, when you say, you know, you're getting off track here, they go, oh, yeah, we are, and we'll get back on track. Well, it's pretty, it's easy for people, especially online, everybody has internet balls, you know, it's so easy to not edit yourself as much as you would in person or whatever. But if anything, it does create very interesting conversations. And, you know, I often compare myself to the conductor of an orchestra. I'm not there to make as much music as everyone else does. It's, it's the people that bring their own voices and their own instruments. But there is still a score to play, a, a tone to, to set. So when, when people join the forum, guys, there are some hidden things that people on the outside can't see, right? Oh, yeah. yes. There are four forums that, if you're not a member, won't even show up on the, uh, on the first menu page. What do you got? Well, there's, there are mainly ones that are slightly more controversial, about controversial subjects or uh, just of a slightly more mature nature, adult nature than other <laughs> ones. Uh, the first one... Yeah, that yeah. no one can get, that members only can get to is the global warming section. It's a child board under skepticism slash science talk, and it's just about global warming. It's, for some reason I've noticed that each skeptic board out there somehow starts coalescing around one controversial subject. And even though I don't think it's all that controversial, I, there are people that do. So we made a global warming section. Is that hidden, though, because of how heated the discussion gets, or is that just... Hidden, slight, mostly about yeah, half because... Yeah, we do more moderation in that yeah, board okay, than yeah. we do other boards. Yeah. <laughs> Admit it. <laughs> Admit it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. 
Um, <laughs> it's it's hidden because yeah, because th- because posts get heated there. Yeah. People are very divided still, and skeptics in general are still divided on this issue. Yeah. And so we set that aside, um, one, so that they can get a little bit more heated. It's a place where the tone can get a little bit more uh, intense than the rest of the boards. And it's also hidden so that Google bots and spiders can't go there and search it. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, people are freer to say what they want to say there. And that comes up in the other boards, too, that are hidden. The uh, politics board is hidden because, you know, w- you know, of course, what could be less uh, controversial than politics? Um, the, the, the forum games board is hidden just because there's a lot of, a lot of silliness that goes on there. Yeah. And the last, and the fourth board that's hidden is called explicit. And that's definitely more of an adult nature. Yeah. I, I remember great, being in tremendous debates with people at the time and Rebecca and I were talking about it and we were just like, why don't we just create a place for people to say, go nuts, go ahead, say whatever you want to say, unmoderated, and people went for crackers in there. It just was. It went. It went nuts in there. I'll so just say this: the, the explicit board was, or explicit jail is probably one of the most brilliant <laughs> things that Doug has ever come up with, as far as moderation goes. We stick all of our crazies in explicit jail, so that we can still like have fun with them, but. You know, they, they're not allowed to go out and roam and troll the rest of the forums. Oh, okay. So you ban people to the explicit forum and let yes. them go nuts and right. do whatever and they, they want. only post there. Oh, that's a it great was, idea. Right. It is. The other thing that's great about explicit is that threads that don't get posted in after for more than five days, if they've just gotten stale that way, get deleted. And by deleted, I actually okay. mean permanently gone. And that that actually lets members open up a little bit more. There's one guy that's posting about relationship issues that he's having. And people are giving him all sorts of advice. And we all know that as soon as that advice gets old or stale, it's going to go away. Now, I've joined you guys um, several times on the uh, IRC channel. And uh, why don't you guys tell us quickly about that and, and how many people are, are in there and what kind of conversations you guys have in there. The address for it is irc.ryzen, which is spelled R-I-Z-O-N, dot net. And the channel is called SGU-Fans. Uh, if An easy way to get to it is if you go to the forum, which is at sguforums.com, by the way, and you click... Uh, at the bottom of the main graphic at the top, it actually says click here to join SGU fans and chat via IRC. It will open up another web browser window, and you sign in, you go right to it, and there you are. And I am almost always there. <laughs> so. Most of us are, unfortunately. Yeah, most of us are, yeah, most of us just, when I log on to my computer, it just automatically opens up. An IRC session, so I'm I'm just there. And if you ever want to get my attention, just type Belleth, B E L E T H. So, guys, um, now we are we still doing the uh, Mafia games? Yes. yes. Oh yeah, definitely. I actually I, I've never played a game of Mafia on the boards before. I don't really know anything about it other than um, like I, I've just read like people freaking out about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Canada Ever. would it, be one of they them. They can get a 10th too. Okay, and, I'm going to promote a... I, I'm going to be doing a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy pretty yes, soon. Yes, and it would be a great time for people who want to play games to come in and join up and see what the the mafia is all about because it's a great way to get to know other people on the boards and interact with people um, and even make some friends. I know I've made a lot of friends on the boards just in my travels. Um, I've met over 30 people from the message boards, and a lot of them were mafia players. There's a calendar post style board under general discussion that members can go and and post events that they're going to have. Uh, I've I've had a few just you know skeptics in the pub sort of things uh, around where I live, and you just post them there, and people show up, and it's a lot of fun. Amanda, why don't you uh, tell us about some of the crazier things or, or, or uh, the best things that's happened on the boards in the past year or so? Well, one of the threads that I wanted to bring up is probably a thread that most people would be familiar with. It's the uh, Waste of Time thread. It was uh, a thread that was started like two years ago, I think, and it went on for probably about a year. It started by uh, a Christian fellow by the name of Knight7, um, and I just want to—I want to read his opening post here. So uh, he started his uh, time on the forum by asking, "Do any of you wonder if you died this afternoon while driving home from work? How stupid you would feel if you woke up in hell, having spent so much time rationalizing your way out of belief in God's existence and perfecting your arguments against Christianity slash religion?" And that's one sentence. And why not pursue other interests and let other things define you? That started a 149-page thread that was actually one of my first, uh, one of the first threads I posted in, and it was it was quite fun. Um, he never really went beyond his initial argument, but it was definitely fun engaging him. And we definitely have a few posters that will start topics that are controversial in like the public understanding, like the public view. Um, but aren't really something that skeptics would consider controversial. So it's always interesting talking to people who have different views like that. And by interesting, I mean interesting. <laughs> I like threads like that because it gives people a chance to hone their discussion debating skills. Yeah. And things, things that are so obviously not skeptical. Where do you start with something like that? You, you have to find out what, where that person is coming from. Yeah, and I think the um, threads like that are a really great way for people who agree with each other on a lot of things to find out things that they don't agree with each other on. Um, and that's kind of a problem that you might find on a board for skeptics. They're, you know, we agree on a lot of things, and we don't tend to talk about the things that we disagree about. And so threads like this bring up the things that we disagree about, and we have really interesting conversations about them. Yeah, we should also mention there is a thread dedicated to every episode of the SGU that gets started as it gets published. You know, we get a lot of emails from people who are giving us feedback on some of the topics we talked about, and it's obvious to me that they clearly want to engage in a discussion about those topics uh, to further them or to bring up specific points or maybe more information that they have. And a lot of the times my reaction is, you know, you really should go onto the forums because we're having a very active discussion about that exact question on the forums. So if people who haven't checked out the forums really should give it a look, if for no other reason than just to you know, get engaged in conversations about the topics that we bring up on the show. 
All right, guys. So uh, we would like to formally once again thank you for the hard work that you put in. I mean, we are um, very much aware that that it is a difficult and uh, you know time consuming thing that you do for us, and um, you know we just can't do enough to, to say thanks. And we really do appreciate it. There really isn't that many ways that we can show you our thanks other than you know to, to say it. So we're saying it. Well, you're thank welcome. You. And it's it's our pleasure. We, we do appreciate it. Thank you, guys. And thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, thanks. for having us. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Good night. We'll see you online, guys. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Jay covered very nicely last week. Thank you, Jay. Uh, I am doing it again this week. We have a theme this week. Uh-oh. Halloween? The theme is Halloween. Yes, very good. Good. Wow. <laughs> no extra credit Man, for that, but very good. This is good. such a gimme for Bob. Though. I know. And yeah. there's four items instead of three. I hate when you do... Why do you do this? <laughs> why? to torture you. Okay, why? are you guys ready? <laughs> oh, boy. Yes. Okay, here we go. It is close uh, to midnight. Item number one. The world record for the heaviest pumpkin is 1,810.5 pounds. <laughs> item number what? two. Oh, come on. <laughs> Come on. No, I I've stricken that. <laughs> according, to, according to Celtic superstition, if you look into a mirror at midnight on Halloween, you will see your own death. All right, number three, Americans consume about 25 pounds of candy per capita per year. And item number four, in a process called saponification, some corpses spontaneously turn partially into soap rather than decompose. What? Mm, soapy you can't turn into soap. Okay, Mr. Incredulous, you go first. A 1,810-pound pumpkin. Like, all right, so I bought a pumpkin recently, and it was probably five pounds. I thought it was pretty, <laughs> pretty big and pretty heavy. I mean, how big would that monster be? Just under a ton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but size-wise, I mean, I would imagine something a pumpkin that big would probably just about fit in the back of a pickup truck, right? I mean, the thing would be just huge. Yeah. That'd be cool if you carved it, though. That would be awesome. People people do. I've, I've seen I've seen it. It's amazing. That could, of course, be true. Who the hell knows? I mean, I, I really don't have any idea. Let's see here. So the next one is, according to Celtic superstition, if you look into a mirror at midnight. Celtic, Halloween, Celtic, It's not a basketball what? team. <laughs> Ever. Really? <laughs> I'm just Sorry. trying to help you out, all right? Okay, I don't need that kind of help. I, I actually don't care. Uh, the point is, Rebecca, if you look into the mirror at midnight on Halloween, you will see your own death. All right. What does that mean? Like, like, okay, so most people are going to see a vision of themselves, you know, rotting away in a hospital bed, <laughs> or maybe like dying on the toilet or something. All right, that that could be a Celtic superstition. It could be. It's ridiculous. Um, I mean, it would be pretty easy to disprove. Uh, Americans consume about 25 pounds of candy per capita per year. Now, is that what? Is that per person, Steve? (laughs) 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 Okay. Uh, Every 365 days. You know what? The fact that it says Americans and not people, like in general, I, I don't disagree with that. 
because you know if you think about how much does a piece of candy weigh and how many yeah sure I, I don't doubt that in a process called saponification some corpses spontaneously turn partially into soap rather than decompose how can that possibly be true really to soap soap Steve I believe that's what it says I don't even know how to start with that. Like, how can I? What, what do I start to think about to to make that make sense in my head? All right, I know what soap is made out of. Call it soap. Maybe that'll make more sense. I mean, is this corpses that were treated with modern chemicals for preservation? It says spontaneously. How can I not pick that? I, I have to pick that one as the fake. Corpses don't turn into soap. That's it. Okay, Evan. Heaviest pumpkin being 1,810.5 pounds, when we all know it's 1,810.4 pounds. Trixie. Uh, I really don't know about that one, you know. It, look, if, Steve, if, you were, if that one is the fiction, I don't think you're making up the number. It's got to be something else, though. It's like a gourd or a squash or something else, maybe, but not, not, the, not the number. I don't think you'd tweak with that. So I think that one's right. According to... Celtic superstition. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Looking into the mirror at midnight, you'll see your own death. Yeah. There's so many ridiculous superstitions and uh, thousands. Culturally, just too many to count. Why the heck not? All right. Americans consuming about 25 pounds of candy per capita per year. I don't know about that one. Uh, I think it's 25 pounds of sugar, isn't it? Per capita per year, not candy. Specifically, I seem to recall being 25 pounds of sugar rather than candy, per se. I'm tempted to say that one's the fiction. And then the process called saponification. I've never heard it called that. But um, you've ever heard of uh, the rumors about, uh, and this is kind of morbid and everything, but you know, Germans in World War II, they were melting down people and turning them into either bars of soap or using them as taking the skins of you know, Holocaust, of dead Holocaust uh, victims and turning them into lampshades and those sorts of things. So I think there might be actually something to that as far as uh, chemically you can boil down the mass of a person and get a soap of some kind. So I think that one actually is correct. I'll say the candy is fiction. Okay, Bob. The heaviest pumpkin, 1810. That sounds about right. I thought they, I thought they broke a ton by now, but that's close enough. And Steve wouldn't tweak that by just a little amount. Um, so that, that sounds good. Let's see, 25 pounds of candy per capita per year. Uh, that, that sounds about right. That one I'm kind of, you know, that could be a little bit more. It could be a little bit less. I'm not, but not, not by a tremendous amount. I think I'm going to go with that one. Uh, saponification. Yes, it's called grave wax. It's really cool. Um, uh, it, it definitely, yeah, it's, <laughs> it looks, it looks pretty interesting. I've seen pictures. So, uh, the Celtic superstition, uh, looking at a mirror at midnight, I've never heard of that before. Did they even have mirrors? Uh, but I never heard of it, so for that reason alone, I'm going to say that that is fiction. <laughs> okay. Rebecca? <laughs> Allow me to answer Bob's question and say, yes, they did have mirrors okay. since long prior to the Celts, I believe. But, uh, I mean, since they had metal, they had mirrors. Yeah, so I've seen the soap lady at... Uh, the museum in Philadelphia. They actually call her the, the Soap museum. Lady? Oh, yeah. come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy and cool and creepy. Um, and have I mean, you could guys you literally... seen Fight Club? You know that 
you know. La 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 la! I missed the food. last ten minutes of that. Oh, Bob! What? <laughs> Are you? Kidding? I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Bob, oh, no way, Bob. Well, with the, you know with what, Bob? The, thing they all, and the guy when he they all turn into soap. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you ruined it. And he hasn't seen He hasn't seen the last uh, episode of The Sopranos or of Battlestar <laughs> no. Galactica oh or the oh last God. season of 24. So we can't uh, talk about anything in front Tony's, of Tony's Tony's dead. Tony's dead. I saw it. Anyway. <laughs> uh so yeah, my point is that yeah, you can you can turn into soap um rather than decompose. That didn't happen in Fight Club, but they, you know, they make soap out of human fat, which is how you make soap. While they did have mirrors, um, I'm pretty sure that the superstition is that if you look into a mirror at midnight on Halloween, you see who you're going to marry. And if you, if you're not going to get married, you see a skull. That is how I recall the, the fable, the myth. So I'm going to go with that as being That's the silly. fake. Okay, so we're spread around, we're spread around a little bit, but you all agree. That the world record for the heaviest pumpkin is 1,810.5 pounds. And that one is science. Yeah. Not surprising. It's not really science. It's just a big yeah, pumpkin. Yeah, it's a fact. It? It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's a fact of nature that's <laughs> related tangentially to Halloween. You um, would not believe the effort it goes into making gargantuan pumpkins. Yep. They, they, they literally consume like 100 pounds of water in one day. Like crazy, crazy amounts of water. Yeah, yeah. they do put a lot it's fasc- of water. It's in fascinating. Place. This is Chris Stevens of New Richmond, Wisconsin, at the Stillwater Harvest then. Fest in Stillwater, Minnesota, October 9th, 2010. Just broke the record. Basically, Ooh. every year, you know, most years in the yeah. last 10 years or so, they've been breaking the record over and over again. Last year's record was uh, 1,725 pounds, so this is Ooh, 85 pounds it. more. Get it? Yeah. <laughs> smashed it. Yeah. Smashing pumpkins. These <laughs> massive pumpkins are always fascinating to look at, but I have to confess, I'm always disappointed that they're yeah. always kind of on their side and squashy looking. Yeah, gravity, man. Huh. Oh, yeah, I know, gravity. Good they, one, Steve. They, they, have to, right, they have to figure squashy. out a way to like hydroponically grow these pumpkins so that they could have the real pumpkin shape. Or, or Imagine, rotate it. Um, yeah, it ma- <laughs> rotate it. It's put it upright. I mean, something. I guess you can't do that, whatever. I've never yeah. seen one that wasn't on its side, so there's got to be a reason for that. Let's go on to – you guys pretty much gave the, the saponification one away, so let's go there. In a process called saponification, some corpses spontaneously turn partially into soap rather than decompose. That one is science. Sorry, Jay. Ah, there, there is a soap lady. Uh, and this, this can happen spontaneously if the conditions are right. The, it's not The pH. Is it related common. to pH, I think? It's, it's, it's acidic, moist, and warm conditions do this. If, the, if it's too acidic for certain bacteria to – to decompose the corpse. And it also is more likely to happen in people with a lot of body fat. Now, the, the term saponification refers generically to the chemical process of turning fat into soap, basically. Um, not just as it relates to corpses. It's just that that process is called saponification. I thought grave wax was a more common Grave wax is the term, term for when it happens to corpses, yes. But yeah. the process is called saponification. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Grave wax sounds better. Yeah, grave wax. Let's go on to number two. According to Celtic superstition, if you look into a mirror at midnight on Halloween, you will see your own death. And Rebecca, you thought this one was the fiction. So did you, Bob, right? You two both thought this was the fiction. And this one is the fiction. 
Yo, Hooray. yeah. And Rebecca, you got it exactly right. I, you know, you get bonus points for that. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the superstition is that if you look into a mirror at midnight uh, on Halloween, you will see that your future spouse. What if you're married? Well, it, it, it doesn't your second apply. wife. <laughs> um, apparently, no. Originally, you know, Halloween was the Celtic holiday uh, in the New Year. Basically, it was the 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 beginning of the the new calendar year for them, and they had a lot of celebrations and you know cultural beliefs and superstitions superstitions surrounding that. And apparently, a lot of superstitions around that day involved some kind of divination, you know, divining the future. And there were all kinds of different things that you can do. Uh, a lot of the ones that I read about had to do with girls seeing the man that they were eventually going to marry, which it all kind of has like a vaguely sexist tone to it. Like that's what they were most concerned about at the time. When I read it, I'm like, you know what? The, the, a more of a, like a modern Halloweeny myth would be like seeing the manner of your... Halloweeny. Yeah, Halloween. Oh, your the manner of your future death, but that no, they all all the divinatory ones have to do with who you're going to marry in the future. Ooh, scary. Yeah, which means that number three Americans consume about twenty five pounds of candy per capita per year is science. science. That one is true. Uh, that number has gone up uh, a little bit in the around the turn of the century. But actually, in the last couple of years, it's down a little bit. We're actually not continuing a pace to increase our candy intake. Not clear exactly why that is. Most candy consumption occurs around candy-based holidays, like Halloween and Valentine's Day and Easter, and then and also Christmas. Halloween Saint is number Swiggins one, though. Day. Of course. Don't forget Arbor Day. Mm, delicious Arbor Day candy. <laughs> The figures I've been reading over the last 10 years are always between 22 and 25 pounds. That's for Americans. Now, um, candy, they actually, when they track these things, they break it down into chocolate, non-chocolate, and chewing gum. Those are the three kinds of candy. Um, chewing gum is like 14% of the, of the total of all types of candy. It's not very much. Whether or not it's chocolate or non-chocolate-based candy depends on the country. So what country do you think consumes the most chocolate? Just chocolate, not all candy. Switzerland. Switzerland. Yeah, I'd say Switzerland, yeah. Swi- yep, Switzerland. They consume about 25 pounds of just chocolate per capita per year. Oh. The, the U.S. is like 11th you know, on that list. We don't, mm. so we don't consume you know, relatively that much chocolate. Guess which country consumes the most non-chocolate candy? Uh, Germany. States. Germany. Um, Ooh, that's a good guess. Denmark. Um, Denmark. I say Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there a delay? Uh, um, <laughs> but yeah, it sounds like a lot, though. You think about 25 pounds of candy. How many calories is that? Yeah. Well, a lot of sugar. Enough. I don't really sugar. eat candy. I'm, you know, Great. you can take that whole category of non-chocolate candy and throw it in the trash. Yeah, right. <laughs> what's it like, Jolly what's, Ranchers? What's the point? Name one good one. Name one. Taffy. Twizzlers. Twizzlers. Eh, yeah, you know right. a Twizzler. I'll eat a Twizzler if that's all you've got. But you I know like what? Them. If a Twizzler is it's sitting next no to a comparison. Kit Kat, for for me though, I only ever eat Twizzlers when I'm in a movie theater. That's true. And, yeah. and also, like, why go for Twizzler over a Red Vine? Because anything, well, there's a certain a psychological association there. I mean, I, I associate eating Twizzlers with watching great epic movies. So mm. it's part of yeah, the ritual. We've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, so I don't a consider kid. chewing sugar-free gum though, like eating candy. Well, it no. counts. I don't, 
It does? It's on to me. It's gum. Yeah, it doesn't count. It is gum. It's sugar-free. There's no... What's the candy? What am I... I'm not even taking in any calories. What about sugar-free chocolate? Sure you are, Jay. Couple. What about dietetic chocolate? Sugar-free gum, Bob. How many calories are in one? You don't even swallow it. Why the hell are you eating sugar-free gum? You know what? If you don't swallow, it doesn't count. That's what... Mom always. If you don't swallow, so it doesn't count. Are you, su- are you suggesting we should swallow our gum, Rebecca? I'm saying it doesn't count if you don't. Jay, rescue us with a, co- a quote. Uh, this is uh, this quote uh, happens to be amazingly um, related to today's episode. Mm-hmm. This quote was sent in by Jamie in Philadelphia, and the quote was written by Sir Austin Bradford Hill. I see. And the quote is. All scientific work is incomplete, whether it be observational or experimental. All scientific work is liable to be upset or modified by advancing knowledge. That does not confer upon us a freedom to ignore the knowledge we already have or to postpone the action that it appears to demand at a given time. Who knows, asked Robert Browning, but the world may end tonight. True, but on available evidence, most of us make ready to commute on the 8.30 the next day. Sir Austin Bradford Hill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was basically a more succinct version of my rant from earlier in the show. Yeah, uh, that he was an English epidemiologist and statistician, pioneered the randomized clinical trial, and together with Richard Dahl, was the first to demonstrate the connection between cigarette smoking and lung cancer in 1950. That is it, unless anyone has any other announcements. I do. You guys, I'm going to go to New Zealand after Australia, and I wanted all of our New Zealand listeners to know. I'll let everybody know the details when I have them, but I wanted to give people the heads up that I'm going to be hitting at least Christchurch, Auckland, and Wellington. So contact your local group if you want info. Um, and if you live somewhere else and you want me to come, then contact New Zealand Skeptics and we can arrange it. I wish I was going with you. Yeah, but the rest of us are going to Cairns. Screw you Cairns. guys. Although I understand uh, not that many <laughs> skeptics up there, but if there are if any, there are. let us know. We'll be there yeah, let us know. after TAM Australia. Jay, you had an announcement too? I, Steve, I have an <laughs> announcement. I was recently interviewed by Chris Brown, who uh, has a podcast called Meet the Skeptics, and uh, we had a really good time. We we actually did the interview in Bob's haunted corn maze Woo-hoo. last week. Bob has a haunted corn maze. So, if you're interested, take a listen. Thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, Steve. yeah. Happy Thanks, Halloween, happy. everybody. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. And happy All Saints Day. And until next week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.